I was trying to think of a list of dead words. Here's the types of screws. They're flat screws, they're raised screws, they're bugle screws, they're non-countersunk screw, st- screw heads. They're binding, dome, flange, truss, combination heads, external, hex, hex internal, Phillips, podi-drive, quadridrex, slotted, square recess, star, torix, torix plus, tri-wing, tamper-resistant screws, pin screws, sentinel screws, two-hole screws, and about 40 more. Now, if you somebody who spends time putting things together with different screws, it might be interesting. But if you, unless you have some connection with the words, they're just a list of words, uh, not particularly alive. We are the ones who give aliveness to things. Things don't give aliveness to us. But that aliveness comes from when we feel connected. They become dead when there is no uh, heart connection, when there's no living essence, or when the living essence is not available. And that living essence, which has many names because it can't be pinned down, it can't be put in a box, many approximations, that living essence is our true being, what we are connecting to, what we are giving life to the life. We give practice, we bring practice into our life, and we give our life to practice, and that practice brings more life. Life to life to life. And it's not up, of course, to anyone else in our particular life. And what is brought forward out of that liveliness is, of course, has a different flavor for each person. But there is nothing but this liveliness coming forth from the great mystery. And it may look like dullness. It may look like kind of blank, insurmountable obstacle. It may look like pain. It may look like joy. It may look like ease. In the infinite essence of our nature, whatever comes up, whatever our experience is, is that welling up of truth, is that place that says, look right here, this is alive, this has got some juice to it. Now, of course, as we, I mentioned some of the time, often it's aversive, it's something we didn't like, and so we have developed strategies to avoid it, strategies to to cover it over, strategies to turn our attention away from it. And then those strategies become obstacles. And those obstacles the strategies become, we turn ourselves away from it. And little by little, we create a cocoon around ourselves of ineffective strategies. And part of practice is unwinding those through awareness by moving into, by moving directly towards our experience. And sometimes the things that are the, the, the blockages, so to speak, things that are the created defenses, are the most, call us most strongly. The pain, the dullness, 
the frustration, whatever, they call us most strongly. And they're most strongly asking us, look, look, feel into, feel into, see what's inside this. And in this way, practice becomes about connecting with our true being. And we give life to the life that's already there. We give life to our practice. And no one else can do that. Now, this is not a self-improvement project, although it's nice when we do find ourselves flowing more smoothly and skillfully. But this is an aliveness project of looking with our awareness into life and being curious, not rejecting. So with no curiosity, um, session can be pretty tedious when you learn patient endurance. But with curiosity, it becomes much more interesting. This text that we're looking at, the text by Bodhidharma, Two Entrances and Four Practices, has been around for millennia. And many practices, practitioners over the centuries have referred to it, commented on it. There are at least 10 modern, I think 10, modern translations. And this short text points to something alive. And by recognizing it in ourselves, we too can become alive. So it begins, there are many ways of entering into enlightenment, but all of them may effectively be subsumed under two categories, the entrance of principle and the entrance of practice. Or another translation, many words, roads lead to the path. But basically there are only two, reason and practice. Or third version, there are many roads leading to the Tao, but essentially they can be subsumed under two categories. One is entrance by way of reason, the other is entrance by way of conduct. Now, how do we make these live words? How do we hear these in a way that uh, comes from the, the tingling richness that they can point to? They can be heard as dead words, especially when we're listening to a, reading a text or listening to a text from over a millennia ago. So it's why it's sometimes helpful to have a little bit of, of uh, translation. So this text is about the entrance to awakening. And who, we're all here because we have some aspiration for awakening, for enlightenment, for entering the flow, for the confidence that's based on truth, for understanding our connections with all things, for seeing the oneness of all things. Ultimate, understanding the ultimate. We all have that aspiration, however we phrase it. There's something in us that has called to us. And has moved us our whole life. 
We often, sometimes we do way-seeking mind talks where somebody looks at their life, their whole life as practice, their whole life as a quest for the truth. So this text is a personal advice for liberation. This text is pointing out liberation. And so from that vantage point, it's not really a dry, meaningless text, but it can be alive because of we our aspiration. So he talks, off, talks first about two entrances. An entrance, as we all know, is a way into something, a gate, a door, an opening, a portal. So this is an a portal into awakening, a gate into awakening. Now, the most famous gate in uh, Zen Zen Buddhism is the the Mumonkan, collection of 48 koans from the early 1300s, mid-1300s, I think. And its translation is, the gateless gate. And the very first line of that text is, the Buddha mind is the basis. The gateless is the Dharma gate. If it is gateless, how can you pass through it? So, the entrance Entrance into the Tao, entrance into the way, is a gateless gate, a gateless entrance, an entranceless entrance. So this is about something other going from one state or place to another state or place. It's something not it's something about going from an idea inside to an idea outside. It's something more challenging than that, and it's a hard gate to pass. The very first koan in the Mumonkan is the koan Mu. A monk in all seriousness came to the great master Joshu and says, that it's tr- is it true that even such a lowly thing as a rat has a Buddha nature, has a true nature? And Joshu says, no. And other times he says, yes. So this koan, is this first koan of the gateless gate, is how do we penetrate into that which has no inside or outside? How do we enter the gate in that way? How do we see the intimacy of all things? So entrance in terms of our practice, in terms of this session, in terms of being right here, is waking up to what we are and where we are. Right here, right now. And what we are is not a conclusion. If we have a conclusion, it means, oh, I understand it like this. That's a conclusion. I understand that I am a, you know, a bodhisattva in perpetuity. That's a conclusion. A waking up is not a conclusion. It may be like we're traveling and we're oblivious. 
that were in Catalonia. And we're traveling around. We don't know where, the, where we are. And we discover that right where we stand is Catalonia. Right where we stand without a conclusion. Conclusion is I'm awake. A conclusion is I'm dull. A conclusion is I'm dumb. A conclusion is I'm unenlightened. A conclusion is I'm a human being. A conclusion is we just can unfold all the conclusions. And what's before all the conclusions? That's really interesting. And the conclusions are all something from the cognitive level of things. The hands don't really have a conclusion. The teeth don't have a conclusion. Chin, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue. What is it that has conclusions or makes conclusions? So Bodhidharma says there are essentially two ways to wake up. Now, in a way, he's already confused everybody. You know? There is uh, an entrance. How can there be an entrance to the non-dual? There is a gate. That means there is a place of entrance. There is waking up and not waking up. And already, just with these first words, he's set up a a koan, a, a place of curiosity. In, if the gate is gateless, then there aren't two ways to enter it. There are both infinite ways and no ways. If we consider, if we put it in other words, there's a lot of talk about the non-dual these days. From the vantage point of the non-dual, it does not exist. From the vantage point of non-dual, there is no such thing. The vantage point of the non-dual only exists from the dual. So if what we're calling non-dual has the quality of spacious luminosity and all those things that people say, from that vantage point, there is nothing else. It's only from our small-minded vantage point that sets up a conclusion, a barrier, and a gate that says, I am small, alone, and afraid in a world I never made, and I wanted to enter the gate to the non-dual. It's a matter of perspective. Or the other way I I sometimes think about that is uh, knowing and the great mystery. From the perspective of the great mystery, it's all mystery. From the perspective of not the intimacy of not knowing, it's all not knowing. Not knowing only exists from the perspective of knowing. The transcendent mystery only exists from the perspective of the ordinary mind. And yet, how can they be separate? So how can we, 
as practitioners, as bumbling human beings, as both of no importance to the universe and absolutely the center of the universe, how can we wake up to the the great transcendental, non-dual, all-encompassing, boundless, timeless, unseparated truth? How do we wake up to the unknown mystery from the known? This is the the essential challenge that we're practicing with. We keep practicing with my perspective, my perspective, my view, I'm making it, I'm not making it, I want to be here, I want to be there, I like this, I don't like that. My perspective is that judgmental, concluding mind that's going through yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, like, don't like, like, no, don't like. That perspective, it's just a perspective. That perspective sets up these gates, sets up the boundaries, sets up limitation. And during Sashen, we have many tasks, of course. One task is just to know ourselves, know how the body works, know how when how the mind works, know how we work under, under stress, know how we can be creative with different things, lots of, lots of tasks. But it's also about looking more deeply and not being sidetracked by those habitual sidetracks that we have cultivated for so many decades or millennia. Now, in the two entrances he's talking about, the two non-entrances, the two realizations, the two waking ups, one of them is sudden and one of them is gradual. You either wake up suddenly or slowly, bit by bit, you become aware of it. If we're in this strange city, we can wake up instantly, say, oh, I'm in Catalonia, Spain. Or we can wake up little by little by seeing the signs and you know, looking at, at, at the names on the, well, mostly looking at the names on, on shops, street, street signs, occasionally a map. And little by little, we recognize, oh, that's where I am. So it doesn't really matter <clears throat> from a large perspective whether we wake up suddenly or we wake up slowly. We're still in Catalonia. So we can have a realization quickly, or we can have a realization bit by bit. But we're still in the same place. Now, there are different flavors, and this might not be the time to talk about that. There are things that happen with advantages and disadvantages, both sides. So the sudden side, the sudden waking up, awakening, happens because of our particular karmic circumstances. Karma means causes and conditions. You know, each thing has a cause. Each thing has, a, has an effect. Uh, causes, effects. And we can take anything and trace it back. And one of the <clears throat> kind of interesting things of the modern world, maybe since Newton, is we have said, okay, 
rather than looking at the truth, which is all things are interconnected and you can take it back and back and back and back and back and back and back, let's make a little subset here. Let's make a little bubble. And let's only look at causation so far. And then from that place, we can begin to manipulate time and space and objects. And it's functional, it's useful. But it's not not the truth. So because of our particular karmic circumstances, and karma is the way you cough, the way your body is shaped, karma is where you find yourself, how your knees feel right now, whether you're restless. One day, something touches us, a sound, a crisis, a blissful moment. We're present for the birth of a child. There's a sudden crack of lightning in the dark of night. A stone hits a tree. And we recognize what is really true. We recognize things as they are. But it's just like being in Catalonia. We can do that very quickly and suddenly, or we can do that very slowly. We can do that very quickly and shallowly, or we can do it very slowly and deeply. Many different ways of doing that. For us, as practitioners who want to wake up, if we are really curious, if we are really curious and become closer and get interested in our own direct experience, get interested in where we are, the core of our being in the world, then with that interest, we are more likely to have the, the, we're, we're set the stage for a sudden realization. If someone is bored, dull, indifferent, you know, they have a different kind of purpose, they're in Catalonia because they like the nightlife, they may not even notice, or it may not even be relevant to them where they are. And if they, they, become, they don't understand it. But for us, because we are curious about what is fundamental, because our mind, heart is calling us in that way, we're more likely to recognize. We're driving around, a little lost, not knowing exactly where we are. We've kind of gotten mixed up and don't know which way is north. And suddenly we see the Eiffel Tower. We reckon, oh, I'm in Paris. Or again, it may happen very slowly as we <clears throat> are curious and we're walking step by step through a mist and our clothing gets slowly, bit by bit, drop by bot, saturated with water. Now, the, the path the Tao, enlightenment, truth, true nature, all those different words are used in the different translations. <clears throat> the entrance to this 
This is not a dull and boring, quivering isness. There is that aspect of things. You're looking at the ten oxidating pictures. There is one place, maybe number eight, seven or eight, where everything is just empty and still. But that's not our experience. Our experience, I'm putting thoughts in your mind, our experience is things are always coming into being. Our experience is, if we look at it carefully, the universe is creative. And that creativity has a warmth, a love to it. The text says that we enter by means of principle. And some of the translations think that principle means that, you know, the, the first postulant in mathematics is, you know, you've got a postulate and you add to the postulate and you look at the three and you look at this basic principle and you add to the basic principle and you compare and contrast with the basic principle. And so some of the translation translators seem to think that this is a matter of rational, you know, kind of looking at the evidence, investigating and coming to the conclusion that, oh yes, I have faith in this and therefore I've entered the Tao. It gets silly. This is not a matter of principle through reason. It's a matter of stepping in to what is foundational, what is at the core. Stepping in to the transcendental mystery. But how do we step in? Especially right here, right now. Now, when we're looking at translations, you can get a flavor for whether someone has a sense of the experiential that they're talking about, or whether it's something that they have just arrived at through uh, you know, thinking, cerebration. Can't think of the word I'm looking for. And it's like if you have seen an orange and you're trying to describe an orange or point out an orange to someone else, you have a, an experience that you're at least fumbling around trying to share or you at least recognize an orange enough to point it out among a bunch of fruit. But if you've never actually tasted the orange or seen the orange or really know what it is, and you've only arrived at what an orange is by reading about it, by listening to talks about it, then, and then you start trying to point out the orange, you miss the boat. You miss the point. You, you ha we have to to give these practices, to give these texts, to give these chants life, we have to go deeply inside of the nature of our own being. Because it is from that fundamental place, that essential nature of how things are, is where 
the dynamic living truths that these texts are. So what is, so this text says, just step into it. Wake up. And this has happened, and we've read and talked about it. You've read read and heard people talk about it. That somebody will be, you know, as the famous uh, story of the sixth ancestor, he's a fire, you know, he's delivering firewood and he hears a monk chanting and he's chanting the Diamond Sutra and he reaches the line, arouse the mind without it abiding anywhere. And he woke up to the inseparable nature of all things. And according to that sutra, he woke up just like that. And then, of course, he had to spend the next you know, five, ten years refining and, and looking at his old habit patterns and clarifying. But to wake up to everything is flow, is not so hard because that's what it is. What does that mean? It just means that things keep coming together. That at three o'clock, everybody turns toward the altar and then there's a talk and then it all disappears. And then at six o'clock, everybody traipses down to another room and then there's food. And then at seven o'clock, everybody traipses back. That is the essential flow that is always happening. And that flow means we are never separate, never separate, never alone, because we are made up of flow. We are made up of processes that come. We are made up of the air flowing through and the blood moving. We're made up of our sensations that touch the earth. We're made up of sounds that we hear. We're made up of the, the movement of our minds. We are processes that are endlessly connected. If we were not connected, if we were some lump inside all that, that was not just a constant uh, result of the endless connections and coming, coming together of things, then we would be isolated. But that isn't the way things are. We're a process. Our life is a process. Our life is a movement, a movement of thought, a movement of people, a movement of things, a movement of hands, a movement of breath. It's a process, process, and makes endless connections. Endless connections. And each time it comes together, there's a creative moment. Each time it comes together and a flower blooms. Each time it comes together and there's a meal. Each time it comes together and the sun rises. Each time it comes together and a child is born. And then it falls apart. So I often think like this about, I'm sure everybody has seen musical um, water fountains where it's a flat surface and the, the, the geysers of water just keep coming up and down, and I sometimes in rhythm, and sometimes in music, and sometimes to light, 
and sometimes they circle around, and sometimes they go from small to high, and high to low, and there's constant change. They can be extremely elaborate, like in Dubai, or they can be extremely simple, like in an English garden. But it is that coming up, that pattern of coming up, that's really interesting. That's what is exciting about life. And sometimes it comes up as depression. And sometimes it comes up as feeling stuck. And sometimes it comes up as delight. And sometimes it comes up, but it's always changing. Each form appears, disappears, appears, disappears, appears, different, disappears. We are never stuck. Like the water in the ocean. Sometimes waves, sometimes riptides, sometimes icebergs, but always water. So the entrance through principle is seeing, waking up, everything is flowing. It's easy. Even the one realizing it flows. You know, it's not as though there's this thing we recognize flow and then there's, it's, it's a stable point in the infinite change. No, sometimes we recognize it and sometimes we don't, sometimes it's muddled and sometimes it's clear and sometimes it's completely gone and sometimes we ignore it. And some, you know, even our recognition of truth is constantly shifting and morphing. It's not as though there is a, a view which is static. It's all flowing. No matter what we've seen, it will flow, it will change. <clears throat> and it's not, in a way it disappears, in a way it becomes part of the reality of who we are at this moment. No fixed self. But what is this flow made from? And again, this is about looking directly at your experience as you're meditating. So. We're meditating and we're paying attention to the breath, and we see the flow comes from the breath, the air moving, the body moving as it breathes, the mind following, following it, the sensations of pleasure or whatever that come with that. The flow is made up of these elements. Impressions and conclusions and fixed ideas. I, me, and mine. They're all part of the flow of coming into being temporarily. And as long as we know our view is just a temporary perspective, it is not the right one, then we can use it, be engaged with it, and allow it to change. And what is this flow made up? What is the, traditionally we say it's made up of the five aggregates. Body, feeling, thought, volition, consciousness. So right here in this session, every ache, every pain, every bill, every you know, grumpiness, it all will change. We've all seen that over and over again. It's all flow. 
And this text makes something so simple and obvious as that complicated. One discards the false and takes refuge in the truth. You just notice everything is flowing. The false is, is not. Simple. Awaken to the truth through the doctrine with deep faith that all sentient beings have the same true nature. But you can observe, you don't have to have faith that something is, it's seeable, it's right there. All things flow. You can have faith that all things flow. It's like, you also know when you meet anybody, the first noble truth is always true. Everybody has had suffering and challenges and problems in their life. Everybody. Whether they are rich or whether they look really polished or whether they look broken, they've all had suffering. It's just a truth. And again, another translation, one resides frozen in wall contemplation in which self and other ordinary person and sage are one and the same. They're all flowing. Self, other, ordinary, sage, one, same, all flowing. And as we are meditating, if we're not just caught up in our thoughts, which is nothing but flow, and we actually hold our gaze on that truth and begin to see everything is flowing, everything is flowing, we can see it better if we're focused on in one place. If we're anchored and feeling the body moving as it breathes, then the mind isn't sort of jumbling around and trying to, to catch everything all at once. But because it's concentrated, because it's, you know, you're, you're focused in one way, you can see the, the perturbations, you can see the, the, uh, the effervescence, you can see the, the you know, kind of effulgent nature of, of things. And so it's not about, oh yes, everything flows, Therefore, I don't have to do anything, because if we, if we say that, then all of our habitual habits, all of our habitual views, all of our, our fixed ideas, they just take over, and we're no longer seeing flow. Instead, we're just seeing our ideas about things. And so we come to a session, and we sit down, and we look directly. We look directly at the breath. We look directly at Mu. We look directly at the essence of things. All flow. But it's not things flowing, because as we said, we're a process. Everything is connected. So the whole is all connected. And essentially, that's what the fundamental koans are about, is seeing everything is connected. And it's not things that are connected, but everything is connected with itself. And it's all flowing. Recognize that all living beings share the same true nature, which isn't apparent because it's shrouded by sensation and delusion. These are translations from the text. You know, whenever we mistake iceberg and think they're not water, we're deluded. So sometimes in some texts, they say this is a secret text because it's pointing to something obvious like this, but because it's not using language that is readily accessible or people don't have the experience to, 
to readily recognize it, it is secret, right out in front. Secret texts always hide themselves. So if we take this text again, and I'm now going to read it, and read it with this larger understanding in mind, and see if it makes um, it's more makes more sense, impactful, is not so dull. This is a, from Bodhidharma, around the year 500 CE, so 1,500 years ago, a lot of years. There are many ways of entering into enlightenment, but all of them may effectively be subsumed under the two categories, the entrance of principle and the entrance of practice. The entrance of principle is to become enlightened to the truth on the basis of the teaching. What is the truth? What is the teaching? One must have a profound faith in the fact that one and the same true nature is possessed of all sentient beings, both ordinary and enlightened. True nature, we can directly touch it, see it, experience it. And when we do, we realize nothing separate from it. And so this is not a matter of faith. This is a matter of, you know, you look directly. True nature is, this true nature is only covered up and made, covered up and made imperceivable by false sense impressions, by our fixed views, by our thinking we're separate. If one discards the false and takes refuge in the true, discards that things are static and they're all interconnected flow, and one, in this case, I don't think this is a very good translation, one resides frozen in wall contemplation. It just means that we have a steady mind, that we're steadily looking at truth, steadily looking at the nature of things, in which self and other, ordinary person and sage, are one and the same. Obvious. One resides fixedly without wavering, simply a fixed view. Without wavering. Everything wavers. So there's this idea that we have a machine attention. It doesn't work like that. Never again to be swayed by the written teachings, thinking that the truth is found in words, about, instead of in flow. To be thus mysteriously identified with the true principle, to be without discrimination, serene and inactive. This is called the entrance of principle. To be without discrimination, serene and inactive. Um, If we are in the flow of things, and if we see everything is connected, then there's always a response. It's not as though though the personality doesn't need to be in charge of everything. But if we hear a sound, we turn our head in that direction. If we see somebody is hungry, we give them some food. If we so this non-doing, this wu-wei, as some of the translations say, 
this non-doing, is not being a lump. Being a lump is not the apex of the goal of spiritual practice. Neither is extinguishment. Sometimes they translate awakening as extinguishment. You know, and try to inspire people. Go be extinguished. Go be extinguished. Go, go be, you know, go become nothing. Oh, great. It's not very inspiring. And I think that it's, it's a misunderstanding. We are not frozen. We are dynamically alive. And we can see that even what we call birth and death is just the dynamic flowing, coming together and coming apart of all things. So whatever your practice is, it is a, an entrance gate. And we don't need to watch it with our rational mind, calculating and making conclusions. We just need to feel that it is flowing. There is a flow in your life. And we need to enter more and more closely. And the particular way of practice is simply a way of entering, entering deeply. There is no better practice. People often come and think, well, I've done this one for, you know, 10 days and now I'd rather do something else. There is no better practice. Every practice, if the mind of curiosity is engaged, reveals what is true. Every practice. One of the sutras, there was somebody in the, uh, uh, one of the monasteries that was so dumb, he didn't even hardly recognize his name. And they said, oh, we're going to make you, we're going to, we're going to enlighten you. And the way we're going to enlighten you is we're going to bounce this ball in your head. So we're going to bounce the ball in this person's head and this person's head. And when it gets to you, we'll bounce the ball in your head and you will be awakened. And he had a big, deep experience from that. You know, try it yourself. See what happens. There is no better practice. The the better practice, the best practice, is curiosity. Looking into, being with. You can count to two. One in the inhalation, two. It could be a profound practice. But with no curiosity with no investigation, it, it can become stagnant. And in, in the tradition, we often talk about samatha and vipassana. Samatha is calm abiding. And everybody needs to find calm abiding. And that's what the whole call of practice for most people is, is to find calm abiding, to find peace. But calm abiding is just calm abiding. It doesn't have the liberative quality you have to look into things. You have to have the vipassana piece. You have to have the inquiry piece. So calm abiding with inquiry is the entrance gate to the Dharma. <laughs>